Welcome to the Supported Living Property Podcast with your host, me, Lisa Brown, the place to learn about supported living property investing. In this episode, Joe Alexander talks about what you can and can't do in a staff office in a supported living property. She shares the very latest thinking from CQC about this and shares some examples of best practice. Hi Joe, it's great to have you here today. Thank you for coming back. You've obviously we've obviously done um, a podcast and a video previously, um, and because the content was so well received, um, I'm delighted to have you back on again to, to talk about a different subject. For those who didn't hear the first one, Joe, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me back again. It's great to hear that the, the previous work we did was um, so well received. Really. Uh, so yeah, I'm Jo. Um, I'm working as an independent health and social care consultant. I've been um, around in the industry for quite a few years, you know, upwards of 20 years now. Um, and uh, it's great to be able to share some knowledge with you uh, and your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. So we wanted to talk today about um, offices in supported living buildings and the different scenarios and, and how that's viewed by different people. So um, a question I'm asked often at the right at the beginning, just to clarify this, is in supported living, um, do you register the building with CQC? Is it the building that's actually registered? Yeah, so the easy answer to that is that no, it's not. Um, so registering a building then becomes a care home. So you're providing care and accommodation under one contract. Um, and from a CQC perspective, that would be classed as a care home uh, with or without nursing, depending on, on how you're registered and, and what support you're providing. Um, but if you're registered as a care home, then having an office in the building is obviously exactly the thing to do because that's where you run the business from. Okay, perfect. And if you're running an unregulated service, so you're not providing personalised care, you're, you're not registered with CQC, what does, is, are there any restrictions on offices in that space? Yeah, so uh, for unregulated support, CQC don't have any, it's kind of saying what you're doing, you're not registered with them to provide a service, uh, they're not regulating what you do. Uh, so the choice then becomes yours around what's best for the business that you're running. Um, I would suggest people look at the tenders and, and frameworks that they're applying for. Some of those will specify that they want a, an office space in the building or a staff space in the building. Others will specify that they don't. Um, so if there's no guidance on that, then it would come down to kind of organisational preference um, and probably managing the risks of the people that you're kind of supporting in those environments. OK, brilliant. Thank you. Um, so if you are running a regulated service, you're registered with CQC, your service is registered with CQC, and you've got a supported living tenant in a property. Um, what's the situation with the with an office there? Can you then just say, actually, one of these bedrooms in this building is actually my office? Are you allowed to do that, Joe? So generally speaking, the answer is no. Um, and I think there's a couple of kind of regulatory guidances that we can look to to give us some support on those. So if we look at the REACH standards, um, which Paradigm did, you know, probably 20 years ago or maybe 15 years ago, um, but they were renewed more recently. And they're really clear in those that if you're delivering supported living um, and that the tenant um, has the right over their own home to live in the same way that you or I would, that we shouldn't be putting offices in their spaces. Um, uh, and some of the, the wording that they use is around, you know, the house not feeling like a staff workplace, not having a staff influence on, on the accommodation, uh, making sure that people can open their own front door and that they can have access to all parts of the building with the exception of, you know, bedroom space for other tenants. So the minute you put an office space in there and, and say to your tenants, actually, this is staff provision, you know, you're not allowed in here, you're kind of going against those reach standards. 
um, and CQC themselves would direct you to the REACH standards um, and that's found in, in the right support, right culture documents um, and they say that supported living should look to meet those standards although they're not a legal requirement. Um, so the REACH standards is a good starting point to look at, you know, should we put office accommodation in? Um, the other one that people tend to look at is the real tenancy test. So the, the National Development Team for Inclusion who developed the real tenancy test. And again, it looks at the rights of the tenants in the accommodation. So regardless of the level of their ability or disability. Um, and that also talks about you know, being a tenant's own home. It doesn't belong to the staff. It's not a staff workplace. Um, and they suggest that the, the support provider provides um, office space elsewhere, uh, particularly for things like staff meetings, holding staffing records, um, all of the stuff that perhaps you would want in an office, um, but shouldn't be in a tenant's own home. Okay, so, so that would make you think that actually you can't turn that bedroom into an office space, even though quite often I hear people talk about it being an office. Um, <laughs> Would, what what can you do in that in that space if you if you've got <clears throat> staff who need to be on site and you know what what would you call that space and how would you use that space? Yeah, so both both the reach standards um, and the real tenancy test indicate that there is a need, obviously, to have some documentation on site for the safe support for, for tenants that are within the building, and particularly if you're providing um, sleeping support overnight um, or if you're not providing twenty four hour support and the staff may need an area to retreat to. Uh, in between providing support, for example, then having a small space where you've got a bed for your sleeping staff and you might keep your um, risk assessments for the people that you're supporting to ensure that the staff are, are delivering support correctly and in line with their guidelines. Um, I don't think anybody kind of questions any of that really. The, the difference comes when you move from that into what would be like a substantive office space. So if you start having staff files, um, if you plan on holding training sessions or staff meetings or um, you know, staff supervisions, it then moves away from becoming something that is for the benefit of the tenants um, and, and to something that's for the benefit of the staff team and or the organisation. And that, that's kind of where it crosses the line in most cases, really. Um, so if you've got a filing cabinet with all of your staff personnel files in, you know, with their employment history and all those kind of things that CQC require you to have, um, those ideally would be off-sites um, because they're not related to the support that the tenants are getting. They're related to the business, the support provider's business and how they manage their staffing. Right. So that okay. kind, of, kind of helps you judge the difference then between what is kind of substantive office space and what is just for the benefit of the tenants. I think that's really clear. And I think... It having it in your mind that it's to do with the, the tenants in the property that it's their home. Does that mean you could lock that door? Does that mean that door can be lockable? So, In theory, you shouldn't lock it because it's part of the tenant's home uh, and a tenancy would suggest that, that people can have access to all parts of their home in an unrestricted manner, unless it is the private space of a peer um, or fellow tenant. Um, obviously, as an organisation, people have to make decisions on what's, what is based on risk um, for the people that they're supporting. Uh, I would say that all decisions should be made in consultation with tenants and that they should have um, a say as to what happens in those spaces. So if you think that you've got a tenant who may um, enter that space and, I don't know, perhaps destroy records or try and gain information about their fellow tenants um, then you know you'd have to look at the best interest processes around everybody that you support and what's the best decision for that um, the, the kind of best process obviously is the least restrictive and not locking it really so not having anything in there that the tenants would 
um, or shouldn't see, you know, shouldn't be able to have access to. Um, and if staff need, you know, space for perhaps personal belongings that they provided with a small locked cupboard, perhaps while they're on site to leave, you know, valuables if they're off supporting, for example. Um, but we are really talking about as a tenant's own home and, and would I lock a room off in my house? Would you lock a room off in yours and say to you, you know, your, your family that you can't go in? Well, no, you wouldn't. Um, and that's kind of the moral ground on, on which we should try and work, really. I know that some places use it as a state, a safe place to retreat to <clears throat> if there are um, if the tenants maybe you know, behavior sometimes gets a little bit out of control or the staff need somewhere safe, you know, to, to have a bit of a break from yep. in that case, I guess that's that's acceptable is it in the best interest situation or yeah as long as it's done on an individual basis or a service basis and it's not the generic rule that this provider always locks all of their offices and all of their accommodations um it's the same as do you lock a front door in supported living or do tenants hold keys and the ideal would be that all the tenants hold keys it's their own home you know we shouldn't be uh, they shouldn't be having to ask to leave or enter their own home um, but we also know that there are people who can't manage that for whatever reason, um, for levels of risk, for levels of ability, or for the safety of other people around them. Uh, so we do have doors that are, you know, staff have to unlock for people to get out, um, or they need to be supported to do so. And all of those are, are, are okay, as long as we go through the right processes to determine that. Um, and that we're not just saying, because this person lives here, nobody else can have a key. Um, and that it is on a, an individual basis. Yeah. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else you can or can't do or should be thinking about when you're you're thinking about designing these spaces in, in a home? So I think if we look very quickly at the latest guidance from CQC as well, so um, that came out in September, um, and it is just draft at the moment, so it's not a kind of a final um, edit form, and it is in draft, but they talk about the potential of having an office space um, in supported living accommodation um, under a few set circumstances. And probably the most relevant for us to talk about today is that if a provider only has one supported living service, um, and that is their own business, that there is um, allowance potentially coming under these draft guidelines for staff to have an office and for it it to be a substantive office within the supported living accommodation. Um, And I guess that addresses the fact that if you've only got one business and you're only supporting a small number of people, having um, a secondary office space may be not cost effective for you as an organisation. So they're trying to address some of that by saying, you know, potentially we could consider having this in. Um, So it's kind of contradictory, isn't it? it it Yeah, it's contradictory to whatever they've said in the past. But I I do think it's probably designed really for those people that have just got one one supported living service. And and as I say, having an office adds another cost that perhaps they um, shouldn't have to bear. And it does talk about the office being, you know, kind of separated from from the rest of the service um, and being... Um, away from kind of tenant spaces so whether you know you've got a a garden office or a shed space or something with a separate entrance that you know just leads you into an office space I think all of those could be worked into a you know an office that meets the guidance Um, there are downsides to it of course and obviously if you've got more than one business registering an office in your locations like that would require you potentially to have a, a second register manager or any other services that you do um, you've only got a small space in which you can do stuff and if you're doing training or staff meetings you may end up renting additional room space elsewhere to hold those anyway 
Um, and obviously, if you think about the number of frameworks that people go through, if you are providing supported living under a contract with a local authority and you register that office with CPC, if that contract then goes to another provider at the end of the term, um, you've got to deregister, they've got to register, um, and the kind of onus becomes quite difficult and it becomes quite lengthy as well. Uh, so I think in the majority of cases, having the office space off-site would always be preferable, even if it is your only business. Um, but it's interesting to see that in their draft guidance, they are considering that as an option. Mm, so it's one to watch, I think, for, for when the, the guidance is kind of finalised. Do you know when that's likely to be finalised, have they said? The draft only came out in September. So, yeah, I don't think we have any idea yet on the timescales of finalising it. Mm. And is there... A Anything else like best practice stuff about where that should be located within the building or anything else people need to think about what they should or shouldn't put in, you know, what good examples you've seen of how when it works well and doesn't work well? Yeah, so I think the best examples are always where people place the tenants needs um, at the forefront. So, you know, having an office that overlooks the driveway or is the first room that you come to as you come into the front door is, is not necessarily the best idea. Um, it's a tenant's home, you know, if they want to invite their family in or they've got uh, guests coming, the last thing they perhaps want is to have staff um, immediately seen or visible. Um, quite often using the smallest spaces for, for staff is a good idea. You know, they might not be suitable for a, a tenant to use as a bedroom. It may be too small. You may consider it's a bit of an awkward shape, um, but actually staff could make that work really well for the space that they need for their sleeping provision or the small amount of records that they need to hold on site. Um, and then I think it's just around the language that people use with it when they're supporting people. So understanding that it's not a staff workplace, it is a tenant's home. Um, and what do we call it? You know, we don't call it a service. It's somebody's home. Um, let's not refer to it as a service or a site. Um, let's try not to use the word offices. You know, let's try and think about how do we address this space and, and how often do we invite tenants into those spaces and say, OK, this is your space as much as ours. You know, we may sleep in here and, and you know, we have a, our risk assessments or whatever else it is. Um, but that's not to say it's you know out of bounds for you entirely if that's appropriate to the service that you're running um, and I think the best services always work when the tenants feel most simply in control um, over the spaces that they've got uh, you know that's, I guess it's their own home uh, and trying to encourage them to, to take control of it like that is, is always the best way forward. That makes lots of sense thank you. Um, yeah I think that makes it so much clearer and I think from a property investor perspective thinking about actually it's a it's a good use of that small awkward bedroom or that little box room somewhere um does it have to be on the ground floor can it be upstairs it does is there any preference around that um so uh, there isn't there isn't any guidance around where it should be um I think that's down to the organization and the kind of service that you're delivering if you are delivering a service to people with limited mobility and you choose to put some kind of office space, um, sleeping space, whatever you want to call it, on a floor that is then not accessible to people, you'd want to be really clear about how people can access staff if they need to then. So if your staffing is, you know, on a break or it's a, a, like an on-call service or it's overnight supports um, and the staff are on the second or third floor and you've got people with mobility difficulties on the ground floor, how do they then contact the staff if they need to for that on-call support overnight? And there are ways around it. You know, there are call systems, alarm systems that you can um, use on an individual basis. Uh, so, so, yeah, it doesn't have to be on the ground floor as long as you think about the practicalities of how that would work. Obviously, if all your tenants are very mobile um, and you happen to have a really awkward bedroom on the third floor that you could use as your sleeping space, then fantastic. It makes no odds. Everybody can access staff there if they need to. 
That's great. And this we're talking very much about supporting people here with people with learning disabilities, autism, potentially mental health, aren't we, when we're talking about these guidance? Is, is that right? Yeah, so the guidance is, is mainly around um, people living with autism uh, and learning disabilities in, in supported living. There is less clear guidance on those living with mental health needs, but I think that's probably because the support that people tend to get tends to be lower. Not everybody, obviously, but a lot of people living with mental health have a degree of independence um, that they can uh, manage to, to deal with those things without having staff on site at all times, um, often covered by sleeping. But again, a sleeping is just in a spare, you know, a spare awkward bedroom. Um, the guidance uh, from uh, REACH and from uh, the Real Tenancy Test and the CQC documents all refer mainly to people um, on the autistic spectrum and those living with learning disabilities. And, and if you've got someone who has a, a couple of staff, you know, sometimes people have two, three, sometimes up to four members of staff, don't they, supporting them 24 hours a day. Do you need to think about potentially having two spaces or a bigger space if you've got a bigger staff team on site? Or have you seen good examples of how that works well? Yeah, so again, it comes down to what's best for that individual. So if you're doing supported living um, and perhaps in a, a single tenancy for somebody who's got quite complex needs and does have um, at times of the day, more than one member of staff supporting them, it's really important that the staff have got somewhere to be away from the individual so that the individual can be on their own. And, you know, in times of crisis, perhaps that's one of the strategies used um, to withdraw. But also, you know, people don't need to live under, under the spotlight of staffing at all times. There's often periods of the day where somebody may just want to be, and be on their own and, and they should be able to do that, especially in their own home. Um, so we have seen, and I've seen tenancies where there is two or three bedrooms, uh, one of them is taken by the, the individual holder of the tenancy, so the service user, um, and the others are used as staff spaces, um, just to give the, the person they're supporting a bit of privacy, um, a bit of space alone, and for the staff not to feel like they have to sit you know, with the individual in the lounge at all times. Yeah, sometimes that can be triggering in itself to people, um, just being under that constant watch and having somewhere to withdraw to, to allow an individual space by their own, I think is important. Um, but it does depend on the person you're supporting. The message I'm very much getting is about it being personalised, is, is very much what you're saying, thinking about this as somebody's home first and foremost, and then just adapting things to, to meet the needs of the people that are being supported. Is there anything else you think that we need to talk about or, or think about with this? So uh, the only other thing would be that if people are struggling, you know, contact CQC and talk to them about the service that you're trying to register. And they're really helpful in giving guidance um, around what they think is the best thing to do. And, and I would always say to people, you know, give them a call, talk about what you're trying to register, what you think it's going to look like. And, and they'll happily speak to you around a kind of office space. Um, and then just looking at some of the guidance that is available. And I'm sure we can share the links for those um, for people to have a look at. Uh, just to understand you know around um making sure that the tenants have a priority over housing space and and it, for the reach standards actually i've just interviewed sally so that will probably come out before this so um so yeah there, there'll be um a, there's an episode going into details about the reach standards as well for Perfect. people who want to find that so um thank you joe it's been great chatting to you today thank you no problem thank you lisa